Welcome from Alpha to Omega. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth. All of this thing that's happening now with the computer, the digitalizations of our society, of, of information, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century. It's not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce more and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to our leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. They round up the chorus so they all sing praises to their leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's a star cast of intellectuals. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is the 9th of May, and I'm Tom O'Brien. After a number of episodes warning of economic doom, capitalist exploitation, it's time now for something a little different. I am delighted to have with us today an intellectual hero of mine, the mathematician, computer scientist and philosopher Professor Gregory Chaitin. We will talk about the nature of proof, creativity and his latest work in which he proves how random evolution is nearly as good as creative design. But first, the boring stuff. On the podcast website, you can sign up to receive email notifications for the latest uploads. If just listening to this show is an insufficient time waster, you can also join the From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook. You can also help to keep the show afloat by donating some money using the links on the podcast website. This week's show has been sponsored by Rabbi John B., Thanks a million, John. Much appreciated. Now to the interview. I became fascinated with the work of Professor Chaitin after stumbling across an article of his a few years ago in an issue of American Scientist. It talked about the new insights Professor Chaitin had developed about Gödel's theorem and a mysterious new number called Omega. I was hooked. A few years later, I found myself in Madagascar in the middle of a violent coup with no French, no Malagasy and no English-speaking tourists to talk to. All I had to keep me company were three books by Professor Chaitin. For the next three weeks, I sat scratching my head and having my mind blown by the ideas Professor Chaitin described so beautifully in those books. Before we start the interview, I will need to give a quick primer on Gödel's theorem for all you non-mathematics people out there. The idea behind Gödel's theorem is extremely simple, but like so many simple ideas, it has very large implications. Pure maths is built upon a list of axioms, or self-evident truths, that everybody can agree on. Mathematicians thought that with this list of axioms, you could prove everything that was true. The axioms were like a very compressed form of all the theorems. 
everything could be figured out from just this small list of axioms. They acted in effect like a zipped up file of all mathematical truth. But Godel came along and blew that idea clean out of the water. He showed that there are things that are true that can never be proven. That there should be an infinite set of axioms and that you have no way of knowing beforehand if they are right or not. This turned the mathematics world on its head. The truth and beauty of all mathematics was now just a tiny little corner of the infinite world of mathematical truth that existed. It also made people working on a very difficult mathematical problem wonder if it could ever be proved and whether they should just give up and make it into a new axiom. Like many things in life, Gödel's theorem was just too devastating for people to come to terms with, and has largely remained a curious oddity on the fringes of mathematical research. So now to my guest. Professor Chaitin is a professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, and an honorary professor at the University of Buenos Aires. He has honorary doctorates from the University of Cordoba in Argentina and from the University of Maine in the United States. He is the author of a number of books, including Metamath, The Quest for Omega, and his upcoming book, Proving Darwin, Making Biology Mathematical. So could you talk to me about Gödel's theorem and its implications for creativity in mathematics? Gödel's theorem is wonderful because it's deep and mysterious and it has lots of connections with philosophy. It's a place where the the game of mathematics is sort of up. You you're questioning the way mathematics works and what it can achieve and it's a fascinating it's a fascinating piece of work and um i was obsessed by it from an early age i guess i still am but the usual way it's viewed is that it's sort of an embarrassing dirty fact that we should sweep under the rug and forget about as quickly as possible and do our best to carry on as before because pure mathematicians don't want to hear that mathematics is a di- is different from what they think it is and what they think it is is that it's a mechanical that in principle you can mechanically use mathematical logic to deduce all the theorems from the axioms uh and you have to have a finite set of axioms you agree on and this may sound a little dull but the reason they like to have this view of what they're doing which is sort of a a Sunday school fiction is because in that case pure mathematics gives absolute certainty because mathematical reasoning would be as clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4 as uh, Leibniz sort of said a long time ago so the mathematicians like to think that they have absolute truth and the Gödel incomplete result sort of pulls the rug out from under this so it's reviewed as sort of a dirty business or a pessimistic fact and uh, even books on mathematical logic uh, usually in the last chapter they have Gödel's incompleteness theorem and of course that's very good because as you know no one ever gets to the last chapter when they're giving a course so math- pure mathematicians want to forget about it um and also the fact that it has all these philosophical connections is really not considered acceptable in pure math because pure mathematics nowadays is done in a very technical 
spirit, uh, which I, I, I think I can best uh, illustrate by something from the physics community. And what the physics community tells students when they ask questions about what is the meaning, the you know, the deep meaning of quantum mechanics or the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, and what they tell them is shut up and calculate. And that's sort of the same view of the math community. I don't share that view. And I've been thinking about Gödel-Inkel-Pitten uh, since I was a teenager. And I think the, the, the best way to think about it, I think, is not the original way that Gödel did. I follow more along the lines that Turing introduced in 1936. And I've tried to develop it. And only very recently, you know, uh, what I previously would have regarded as an age at which no one would do any important work in mathematics, uh, only very recently I've, uh, I've, 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 I've come to feel that, that, that I didn't understand incompleteness at all up to now. And my new view is that incompleteness, I never felt it was really something uh, that shouldn't be talked about, but it does look a little pessimistic at, at first sight. And the new view, however, is that incompleteness is wonderful, it's fantastic, it's marvelous. What it really is, it's telling us about creativity. And what it means is there is no, mathematics is not a closed system, it's not, it's not something you can do mechanically. There is an intrinsic need for creativity. It's an open system. It's in inherently plastic. It's evolving. It's not static. It's not closed. These are all uh, heretical, subversive words, I guess, to a pure mathematician, but, but it shouldn't be. What they should realize is that actually this is a very deep uh, question because it's essentially a, a version of the question of creativity um, in biology. Darwin's theory of evolution is just another version of this fundamental question, which is creativity. Where do new ideas come from? Where do new organisms come from? And lately I've been working on uh, connecting the two and the level at which I, I have uh, some models uh, of uh, Darwinian evolution in biology. And these models are at a level of abstraction where there really isn't much difference between biological creativity and mathematical creativity. And so I can use techniques which are used in connection with incompleteness where they sound sort of pessimistic, like there are limits to what you can do, but actually you just turn it around and what you see is in fact theorems that say that evolution is, uh, and creativity in biology is going to go on forever. Is it fair to say that the creativity in mathematics can also be looked at through the, through the choice of axioms to set your mathematical foundations upon? Well, yes, that's right. I mean, there are many levels of, of creativity. The usual conventional view is that the creativity lies in deducing the consequences of a fixed set of axioms using fixed rules. And uh, that, I think it's clear that that is already a pretty uh, stupid position because um, one, uh, right, you're, you choose axioms and uh, no finite set of axioms is sufficient. And if you look, for example, at the recent history of, uh, of pure math, uh, for example, in abstract set theory, they have added they have added an axiom called, I believe it's called projective determinacy, in order to be able to go forward and discuss questions which they couldn't discuss. In theoretical cryptography, which is uh, theoretical computer science applied to e-business, they've, uh, they've sort of added an axiom that uh, factoring is hard, is time-consuming in order to be able to prove that crypto systems are difficult. So, in fact, pure mathematicians are behaving, uh, in my opinion, uh, in a sem uh, quasi-empirical way, adding new axioms. So the there's certainly a higher level of creativity in choosing your postulates than in just looking for the consequences of a, of a closed, of a fixed uh, system. 
But it's not just the postulates, it's also the concepts, the whole viewpoint. And if you look at the history of mathematics, it certainly does does change a lot, and um, not only the subjects which are fashionable, but also what is regarded as a valid proof. So I think the whole thing is a lot more organic than people realize. So I now think of uh, pure mathematics as sort of some kind of a biological organism which is evolving or morphing or that is highly plastic. So to me, it always seemed that Godel's theorem for mathematicians is somewhat like a like a priest losing his faith in the absolute truths of his religion. And in a sense, for me, it also talks to the opposite for an atheist. Through Godel's theorem, we learn that certain facts are just true for no other reason. Do you ever think about your spirituality in these terms? It's, it's, it's lovely the way you put it, like a priest losing faith. But you see, it was a, it was a bad faith to begin with because a pure mathematician who has the view that is exploded by Gödel, it basically has the view that mathematicians are unnecessary. They can be replaced by a machine. That there is this finite set of axioms that Hilbert wanted, that we all agree on, and everything is used for that. And why should I, as a human being, want to be involved in this process? Let a machine do it. I mean, this is this is something technical and totally uninteresting. There are no ideas. It's just this mechanical process. So I think it was a bad faith. Let's say it was, uh, these were what, God, there was a God with feet of clay. I don't know quite what the literary reference is relevant here. So I prefer to, to have a, if you want, if we're going to talk about religion, let's talk about Dionysius or these more protean gods of the, uh, of the ancient Greeks uh, before the philosophers uh, emasculated the more robust, uh, wilder, uh, early views. And I think that those, those views of, of the cosmos uh, are closer to what what is revealed by Gödel's uh, theorem, but people are fighting uh, are fighting like hell not to not to accept this view, which not which really runs against the zeitgeist, the uh, the esprit du temps, the whole the whole attitude of contemporary society. It's it's sort of a Dionysian view of things, and sort of like a a, a mad uh, poet, uh, you know, uh, up all night drunk, uh, uh, seeing visions and writing poetry. The only god who was said to have a mortal parent was Dionysus, the god of wine and the grape. His magical gift distilled from the vines was the bringer of both ecstasy and madness. His intoxicating creation can kindle revelry in his drinkers and also ignite drunken chaos. In ancient times, his worshippers would gather in the forest and dance in his honor, drinking until they reached a primal frenzy. The phrase absolute truth sounds sounds seductive at first, right? Absolutely certain reasoning. But when you realize what you're, the enormous price you're paying for that innocent phrase, uh, I don't think it's worth it, really. It really dehumanizes existence. It, it takes uh, all the purpose out of human existence, you see, if we're just machines. So, yes, uh, these deep questions, I, I agree with you. I think, it, I think you're right. Gödel's incompleteness theorem is the kind of question which affects your whole conceptual system, your spirituality, your, your, your view of what the purpose of life is. And uh, I, I agree with you on that, although I think uh, this is a, a minority view. Can you talk about your use of the computer program as the key tool you used to crack a new version of Godel's incompleteness theorem, and also how that is leading you into your new area of research. Yes. 
the original work by Ghetto was very intriguing, but it was uh, very hard to get a grip on what it really meant. And then comes uh, Turing's approach, which I think goes much deeper. But I've added a fundamental new idea. It's the question of information. There is this new notion of uh, information, which is becoming more and more substantial. There's a, a nice book by James Gleick called The Information. And there are all kinds of notions of information. In quantum mechanics now, there's a notion called uh, qubits. I was inspired by working on computers as a child to have this vision, uh, a new kind of notion of information, call, which I call algorithmic information. But the way I would present this notion now is this notion really is an idea coming from biology. Because what DNA is, is algorithmic information. It's information that tells you how to do something. It tells you how to create, how to build, and then run a, uh, an organism. And this is software, and this is uh, genetic information, and this is a kind of information that's been around on the surface of Earth for billions of years. And the version that is first visible, say, with Turing's 1936 paper in Universal Turing Machines, and then becomes blindingly obvious to everybody with the uh, rise of computer technology, like a tsunami that washes over the world, this actually is not a new thing. It was all around us all the time. It's just we didn't realize that we were surrounded by software and digital information. So this notion of algorithmic information that I use as a new technical tool, a fundamental new concept, is what makes the difference. And it's uh, something that I think now everyone has an intuition for because we have digital video and digital music and uh, everything is zero and one bits. It's all algorithmic information. It's all information that tells you how to do something. So now this is quite a familiar no uh, notion. But in 1936, it took a genius, a nonconformist, imaginative person like Turing to come up with this idea. And he himself did not realize how good his idea was. He didn't realize that it applied to biology. It was von Neumann in 1948, uh, 12 years later, who said that, that basically this idea of software or algorithmic information is DNA, is the key concept in biology. And Turing himself never got this message. Turing went off and worked on something called morphogenesis. And he's ignoring his own revolutionary work. He didn't understand, as von Neumann immediately did, that genetic information, biological information, has to be a computer program. I'm continuing on that line of research, trying to actually model Darwinian evolution by, I say, by writing programs without a programmer. You have programs that are mutating at random, and somehow, through evolution, through natural selection, you get good programs, but without a programmer, which I imagine can be stated in theological terms if one likes. Creation without a creator? I don't know. But I can prove in, in, in one or two cases that this works. In biology, theory of evolution, there is a fitness measure which is used to create the new species or the, the mutations in a species. How did you formalize this in a computer programming method? Well, the question of how to do a model of evolution is a difficult mathematical question, and there are many possible ways of doing it. The original way that von Neumann did, he has a cellular automata universe and programs out a uh, designs in complete detail a computer that can reproduce itself. Now, a problem I had was freeing myself from this approach because what von Neumann did is fabulous, it's wonderful, it's inspiring. But if you follow in his line, what you have to do is you have to set up a simulation or a model of a complete universe where you have organisms with bodies and they move and there's physics 
and you have to come up with uh, the laws of a physical universe and a complete design for a metabolism. Of, you know, that's a big job. So I don't do any of that. My organisms have no bodies. They have no metabolism. They're just software. They're just DNA that's evolving. And there's the problem of uh, how do I represent the environment? Because uh, natural selection is the survival of the fittest, and the fittest has to do with fitness in an environment. What do I do in my model to have fitness? Well, here's what I do. My organisms are basically mathematicians, and what they're trying to do is to know more mathematics. And the more mathematics they know, the fitter they are. So now what is the simplest mathematical problem you can think of that requires an infinite, unlimited amount of creativity? Well, it's a very simple problem called the Busy Bieber problem. It's a piece of work published in the Bell Systems Technical Journal by Tibor Radeau. He was my age when he came up with that beautiful piece of work, which shows that there's hope that if one keeps working and imagining and dreaming, uh, one can find things. So it's a very simple problem. It's, it almost seems trivial. That's the beauty of it. The problem is name a very large whole number. The reason this is a problem is because, well, one way to name a very large positive, I can say 99, for example, or I can say 99 to the 99th power, or I can say 99 factorial raised to the power 99 factorial. That gives me a way to name an even bigger integer. You can invent ways to concisely name bigger and bigger numbers. Like, say, you can introduce a notation which enables you to have 99 to the 99th power to the 99th power 99 times. And the point of all of this is that there is no best way. There's always a better way that gives you a very concise, easy way to name of enormously larger positive integers, whole numbers, than you could name before. This problem, simple as it, as it sounds, there is no best general method. So this is an instance of incompleteness, and it's a case of a very simple mathematical question which can employ an unlimited amount of creativity. So I give my mathematical organisms a very simple job, which is each of them is a computer program and it calculates a number. And the bigger the number, the fitter the organism. So this may sound sort of silly. What's fun is that even a problem as simple as this, you have to bring to bear an unlimited amount of mathematical creativity. You can use it to prove that a toy model of, of Darwinian evolution by natural selection uh, works.
in your programming of this busy bee, you had some difficulty in seeing the evolutionary behavior you wanted. Can you describe how you solved this problem? Yes. You've put your finger on the, the most fascinating thing that happened mathematically in these three years of work. I couldn't get my models to work. Uh, I realized that the problem was, the deep question was, what is a mutation? What is a random change in a computer program in the DNA of my organisms? This is a really key question in making the model work, and it's, it's a really key question in biology too, I think. So the original approach I had, the mutations were very low level. You would at random maybe change a bit in the program, uh, flip it from zero to one or one to zero, or maybe you would delete a bit in the program, or maybe you would insert a zero or one someplace in a computer program. It would be a localized change. You might actually, it's less likely, but you might change two bits. The, these point mutations, the probability of a point mutation would decrease exponentially as the number of bits increased. So it was most likely to be a very small number of bits that you inserted, deleted, or changed. In fact, one would be the most likely. But there was a, a very long tail going off forever, and there was some small chance of changing a, a larger number of bits. This is sort of similar to point mutations, something that seems reasonable from the point of view of, of work on molecular biology. Now, the only problem with this is that it didn't, it, mathematically, it didn't seem to function. It didn't seem to get me very far with it. The leap is to a much more general concept of mutation. This was the breakthrough that, that makes the whole theory fall into place, that made, you see, there's this magic moment when you're trying to set up a mathematical theory. At first, everything is awkward. You can sort of do things, but you feel like you have, uh, you know, uh, you're wearing lead boots or, or you have pails of cement around your feet, and everything is sort of a mess. You know, it's, it's all, it looks like a landscape somewhat out of focus. And then there's a magic moment, if you're lucky, where you, you get the right concepts, and then everything falls into place. This, of course, at this point, you have a feeling of inevitability that these are the right way to think about the problem. So this is what happened when I switched to a much more general and even a simpler notion, in a way, of, of mutation. If it's simple to describe the transformation, then it's highly probable. If it's very complicated to describe the transformation you made, then it's, it's much less likely. Once I put in these algorithmic mutations, let me give you an example. So one simple transformation in a computer program in a binary DNA is to invert every bit. You do this to the whole program. Zero goes to one and one goes to zero everywhere. Now, this is likely to completely scramble the brains of a computer program and wreck it. That's a separate issue. But the point about this mutation is that this mutation with the previous point of view, uh, since it's a global change, it was conceivable, but it was infinitely unlikely that you would change the whole computer program. It could happen, but it would be monstrously improbable. Now, with this new point of view, this is an extremely simple to describe this change. Therefore, it's a highly probable mutation. However, it's also the case that it will pr probably never give you a fitter program. It'll probably destroy the, the program. But this is to illustrate how different the new viewpoint is. This new viewpoint, as I learned from reading a book by a Brazilian philosopher, let's see, is it Mauricio Abdala, who referred to a Spanish biologist, Maximo Sandin, there actually is a certain amount of evidence higher level mutations like this may actually occur in biology. They could be connected with viruses and retroviruses, for example. There is a well-known fact which bothered Darwin 
Darwin would really have preferred evolution to be rather steady, small, go by small steps all the time. The fossil record, as Darwin noted, didn't tell that story. It looked like there were periods of, of rapid change. And Darwin's hope was that what happened was that the other fossils got lost or that the organisms somehow were not preserved in the fossil record, the intermediate organisms. Now, Stephen Jay Gould has an enormous book, Punctuated Equilibrium, and he says it's not that the fossil record, unfortunately, has gaps. It's that, in fact, evolution does uh, appear to happen in bursts. And this is somewhat embarrassing from the original Darwinian point of view and from the point of view of point mutations, because these are very small changes in an organism in its DNA. There seems to be evidence, for example, that a lot of uh, the DNA consists of remnants of viruses. Viruses can go and, and, and make changes in DNA. Retroviruses can insert themselves. In principle, they, they, can, uh, they can make other changes. I'm not a biologist. I certainly don't know much about all of this. And I'm not sure that biologists know much about it either. Uh, this is a moment of great ferment. It's an exciting moment in molecular biology. I was in, uh, in Madrid invited by a physicist, Miguel Angel Martín Delgado, and he was also fascinated by the fact that I was using algorithmic mutations because he had done some models of evolution and noted a similar problem, that low-level mutations didn't seem to work too well. So I think it's sort of, uh, it, as I remarked uh, there in Madrid, speaking with uh, Miguel Ángel Martín Delgado, the physicist, and with Máximo Sandín, the biologist, uh, and I'm a mathematician, it's sort of interesting that the three of us, for different reasons, were driven to feel that, that maybe mutations can take bigger steps than is normally thought possible. So, in essence, we see that, that competition does not seem to play the key role in new species being formed. Well, competition filters. Where do you create the possibilities that are filtered out by competition? You need the creativity. You see, natural selection in itself is not creative. In fact, it's, it's, it eliminates things. So you, you need to create these new possibilities, new tries, and that comes from the mutations. And there's the question of how creative these mutations are. There's also a fundamental question, are the mutations random, or is there some kind of intelligence in the system? This is sort of an ancient topic. You can go back to um, the atomists, atoms in the void, everything random. Uh, Darwin follows in that line of thought. There's another view of nature, natur philosophie, maybe. Before Darwin, there were a lot of people like Lamarck who thought that nature was intelligent and was creating new organisms in response to the challenges of the environment. Not at random, that actually nature is, is intelligent. There probably is some intelligence in the system. For example, uh, mutation rates seem to change when organisms are under a lot of stress. You may say it's because if the organism doesn't have enough food or water, its, its DNA copying starts to fail. And, but it looks like there's a certain amount of evidence that actually it's deliberate that the organism is deliberately responding to stress by increasing the probability of mutations. Biology is actually a, an enormously complicated thing with all kinds of mechanisms. There do seem to be some kind of Lamarckian mechanisms. That is established experimentally. They're rather minor, but there's a question of how far this may go, which I think is very much an open question. I'm not trying to model all of this in my little mathematical models. I'm trying to get the simplest model I can. I'm trying to extract a few basic ideas that I can run with as a pure mathematician. I'm not trying to make an accurate model of the enormously complicated things that are going on in, here in the biosphere. 
Organisms are a billion-year-old pieces of software. They're very complicated and very sophisticated. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to prove any theorems about something like that. So I'm trying to extract a minimum set of ideas that, that work mathematically. As my wife Virginia pointed out to me right away, she said, well, now you have to go back to biology and ask biologists if there are any evidence that there are such algorithmic mutations in nature. Many people do not believe in Bigfoot, but a lot of people do. And some of them feel they must kill it to prove it exists. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanation, but not necessarily the only ones to the mysteries we will examine. It is felt by some scientists that Bigfoot falls somewhere in this progressive chart of man, a giant hominid related to but not like modern man. According to this theory, Bigfoot would have pursued a course of evolution separate but parallel to his human cousins. Dr. Grover Krantz is an anthropologist at Washington State University. If locomotion is the human design, so we know it's probably our closest living relative, but um, in terms of um, anything uh, mental characteristics, no, it's not human. So it is a mixture of ape and human characteristics, and if you want to call that a missing link, that's fine. So can you talk about the theorem results, the major theorem results that you have discovered from your work? Okay, so I have a very simple model of evolution with a single organism which has no body, it's just software, it's a computer program, and I'm making random mutations on it, and the mutation is rejected unless the organism becomes fitter. Fitter means it calculates a bigger number. I'm working on the busy beaver problem. Is the size of the program limited? Or can the bits of the program grow? That's a good question. No, the, the program can be as big as it wants. It has to be finite. So we can start at 10 bits and then mutate to 12 bits right, and so on. Right. You can start with a program that just calculates the number 1, say, or the number 0. A very small program. That obviously is not very fit. So then you try making a random change. The random change may scramble the brains of the program in such a way that it calculates nothing in which case it's rejected, or it may give you a program that works, but that calculates a number that is smaller than the number you already calculated, in which case the mutation is also rejected. But if the mutation gives you a program that calculates a, a bigger number, it replaces your current organism, and then you start mutating that new fitter organism. So the question is, how fast will the fitness grow? You know, how well does this work? I compare it with two extremes, the stupidest possible regime and the smartest possible regime. So what is the stupidest possible regime? Well, the stupidest possible regime is if your system has no memory and you're just trying organisms at random. This is very stupid, and this is what physicists call ergodic. It covers the whole space of possible organisms, and it'll look at all possible n-bit organisms in time that grows us two to the n exponentially. So this is very stupid. This is exhaustive search. And this is not at all what biologic evolution does. Now, that would be very, very slow, now, the smartest possible thing you can do is to pick the algorithmic mutations, not at random, but using intelligence, in order to make the fitness increase as fast as possible. I can uh, show what that is. 
there are a specific set of mutations that if you do them in exactly the right order, trying n mutations and you get to the fittest n-bit organism. With exhaustive search, you get to the same place, but the number of mutations you tried is uh, grows as 2 to the n. Okay, so this is the stupidest exhaustive search and the smartest thing you can do. The smartest thing being if you're God and you pick the mutations yourself, not at random, in the best possible way. So what happens when the system does have memory? It's not exhaustive search, but when you do pick the mutations at random, not deliberately in the best possible way. So the answer is the system will get you n bits of biological creativity in time that is between n squared and n cubed. So this is a little slower than what I call intelligent design, which if the mutations are not random but are picked in the best possible way. And this is very, very much faster than exhaustive search. Can we put some numbers on this? So say we take our computer program as 100 bits long. In the creative design scenario or the God scenario, it takes 100 mutations to get to the perfect program the program that produces the highest number. Right. And then in our evolutionary scenario, it takes somewhere like 10,000 to a million mutations. That's n squared or n cubed. Yes. And then in the worst case scenario, about one nonillion, 267 octillion, Six hundred and fifty septillion, six hundred sextillion, two hundred and twenty-eight quintillion, two hundred and twenty-nine quadrillion, four hundred and one trillion, four hundred and ninety-six billion, seven hundred and three million, two hundred and five thousand, three hundred and seventy-six, and that's in the stupidest case where you test all of the combinations. Yes, right. Yes. Creative design is that the mutations actually are chosen by intelligence deliberately to drive creativity, biological creativity forward as fast as possible. A God who is in charge of everything and likes us and wants us to progress as quickly as possible. Then the stupidest thing is you just stumble about at random, that's exhaustive search, where you basically got to try every possible organism, rather than going straight to the um, mutation by mutation the best way. So what is happening when you pick mutations at random and you take the fittest, and how fast does that progress? And the answer is that it goes up fairly close to the best possible you can do, and a lot better than exhaustive search. In other words, intelligence emerges from randomness. You are programming without a programmer, not as well as if you had a programmer or were doing it intelligently, but pretty well. This seems to be a very, very deep result. Well, I'm not sure. It's also a very peculiar result, I have to say. On the face of it, it it sounds deep. I was at first, obviously, very, very pleased to get this result. But I think we need to take a look at this and think about it and study it for a while. You know, this is all brand new. This work was was all done in the past three or four years. Uh, It's a first step, clearly. I agree, it's a kind of thing that von Neumann uh, would have liked to have been able to do, except he was too involved in national defense and he didn't live very long. The poor man died rather young. In that paper that I mentioned from 1948, The General and Logical Theory of Automata, he does talk about mutations. He does talk about DNA as as a, a software. I wish he were around that I could discuss these ideas with him. One doesn't know how far this will go. 
What are your hopes for the future of a possible field metabiology? Yeah, I'm pleased that you can prove a theorem about this. Just being able to formulate mathematically a, a statement of this kind seemed totally out of reach. But who knows if it's the right way to think about all of this. What is my hopes for the future? Well, my hope would be that uh, maybe some other people uh, take up this work and see how far they can go with this sort of general line of attack or viewpoint. Already there is a paper just published, and this is uh, the, the Madrid physicist I mentioned to you, Miguel Angel Martín Delgado, has been the first person to notice this model of mine, and he's looked at a quantum version of it, and that was just published a few weeks ago online in scientific reports. I don't know how he heard of this work, so my hope will be that maybe some other people will pick up the torch or pick up this line of thought and see if it helps them and, and if it can be taken forward. Is there a theorem you have in your head that you would like to be able to prove in the future in this work? Well, you know, as a mathematical result, it is already there. It is a model that I can prove theorems about. There is one result that's missing, which is I can show that the random evolution is, uh, is pretty fast. I'm worried that it might be so fast that it's just as fast as what I've been calling intelligent design. In other words, it would be nice to, to, to actually separate the three regimes. And there is a possibility still left open by the proofs I came up with. I know that, that random evolution is much faster than exhaustive search and not much slower than, than picking the mutations in the best possible way on purpose with intelligence. But there is an unfortunate possibility that it, it might collapse, that it might be just as fast, almost as fast as picking the mutations in the, in the best possible way. So from a mathematical point of view, you really want to separate the three regimes. And I've only separated two of them, and I've shown that the two of them are not too far apart, but there's this awful possibility that they might sort of collapse on top of each other. So that is definitely a missing piece mathematically. Now, making more realistic versions of this with more organisms, with sex, with an environment, I don't know how far that can go. I'm hoping that maybe something can be done along those lines. Although there is the awful possibility that any more realistic model will be intractable mathematically. So you might be forced to simulate the behavior of the model on a computer and not be able to prove theorems. What I, now, if you're asking what I would like to see as future work, at this point, I feel I've sort of done all I can on uh, evolution. And what I would really like to see is a mathematical theory of thinking, intelligence, and consciousness, you know, something about, about the brain. The brain is a pretty mysterious thing. I think the brain is, the, is, is a big mystery is the biggest mystery left in biology. And I don't know if mathematics can contribute to that question. Von Neumann himself hoped it, it would. After he did that, that beautiful DNA equals software paper, he left us just when he died. He was going to deliver a series of lectures at Yale. His wife took his notes and cleaned them up a little bit, and it's polished as a little posthumous book called The Computer and the Brain. Von Neumann seemed to think that mathematics would, would contribute to anything and he seemed to be able to pull it off always. Economics, uh, quantum mechanics, game theory. I think that is a, a deep question, and I think it's a challenge. I feel it's a challenge to pure mathematics. It's also a challenge just plain to, uh, to biologists. Professor Chaitin, if you'd like to plug your latest book before we finish. Oh, okay. Well, yes, I guess we should tell anybody who's come this far if they would like to. 
see some more on these topics, I think a, a good place to start is a book of mine that is being published on May 8th. It's called Proving Darwin, and the subtitle is Making Biology Mathematical. It's a small book being published by Pantheon in New York, and at this point I think there's, there's already a deal for a Spanish and a Japanese translation. This is a, my attempt to explain these ideas as non-technically as possible. If they want a little more, I have a previous book published also by Pantheon called Metamath, but uh, that doesn't talk about biology very much. Okay, thank you very much for taking part today. A pleasure. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks so much for your interest in all of this and asking such good questions. 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 Goodbye. 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 Questions. I'd like to thank again Professor Chayton for a highly interesting interview and I look forward to talking to him in the future about his quest for a mathematical theory of consciousness. On this episode you heard the theme tune Shine On You Crazy Scumbag by Clive Star, Bach's Pastoral in F Minor for Organ an excerpt from the Troy DVD on Dionysus and a clip from Island Girl Dance Fitness Workout for Beginners. You also heard Leonard Nimoy talking in the documentary In Search of Bigfoot. The Hungarian mathematician John von Neumann repeatedly saying the word process. And you are now listening to the most excellent suburban kids with biblical names singing Love Will. Due to time constraints, the podcast will be released on a fortnightly schedule for the next while. I hope this won't disappoint you too much. To finish this week's episode, I will read a further extract from Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy, accompanied by Bach's Passacaglia and Fugue in C minor. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Everyone who has done any kind of creative work 
has experienced, in a greater or less degree, the state of mind in which, after long labour, truth or beauty appears, or seems to appear in a sudden glory. It may be only about some small matter, or it may be about the universe. The experience is, at the moment, very convincing. Doubt may come later, but at the time there is utter certainty. I think most of the best creative work in art, in science, in literature and in philosophy has been the result of such a moment. Whether it comes to others as to me, I cannot say. For my part, I have found that when I wish to write a book on some subject, I must first soak myself in detail until all the separate parts of the subject matter are familiar. Then, some day, if I am fortunate, I perceive the whole with all its parts duly interrelated. After that, I only have to write down what I have seen. The nearest analogy is first walking all over a mountain in a mist until every path and ridge and valley is separately familiar, and then, from a distance, seeing the mountain whole and clear in bright sunshine. This experience, I believe, is necessary to good creative work, but it is not sufficient. Indeed, the subjective certainty that it brings with it may be fatally misleading. William James describes a man who got the experience from laughing gas. Whenever he was under its influence, he knew the secret of the universe. But when he came to, he had forgotten it. At last, with immense effort, he wrote down the secret before the vision had faded. When completely recovered, he rushed to see what he had written. It was, a smell of petroleum prevails throughout. <laughs>